Hello and welcome to The Paper Grain, a podcast from Codes in the Clouds and a misspent youth productions. We are Codes in the Clouds, my name is Joe. I'm Jack. I'm Kieran. And I'm Stephen. And this week we talked with our friend, uh, and also friend of Guy Garvey and David Bloody Jason. Jesus, oh. national treasure, mate. But most <laughs> yeah. importantly, our friend, TV producer, promoter and musician, Kerry Ramsey. Might as well just not bother with these first few lines. Do you guys want them? I mean, this, do you guys want the facts this, this fact week? Robot, <laughs> my goodness. I don't I know mean, why you... On, honestly, Steve, you were treading on some very metal toes just then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Kerry Ramsey facts. Let's hear it. Passive aggressive Kerry Ramsey facts. <laughs> Kerry Ramsey is a TV producer, musician and promoter based in Leeds in the UK, which Steve missed out. Kerry loves making TV shows. In the past, she has worked on shows like Big Brother and works with people like one of Joe's favourites, David Jason, and is currently working with Guy Garvey of Elbow fame on the fourth series of From the Vaults on Sky Arts. When she's not schmoozing with famous people, Kerry is also the keyboard player and singer in the band A Headless Horse. She's also Mm. part of the Bad Owl Promotions Entourage, who put on the wonderful Strange Forms Festival in Leeds once a year. Do you know, that, that band name is one of those ones where it's like, if it was sent in as a teenage <laughs> band name, I'd go, oh, that's funny. But now I'm hearing it, it's like, nah, actually, I quite like it. Band names are weird, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> yeah. There's no logic to what makes <laughs> I really, li- I really like that band name. I'd happily buy that album yeah. on vinyl. Um, I've got a little something for you, Steve. A little, a little correction. Not a fact. I'm not treading on toes like you did. But you said... Yeah, he, he- your Might stupid mouth said uh, we talked to Kerry this week. That didn't happen, mate. Uh, yeah, no, no, that that's not that's not strictly true. So actually, we spoke to Kerry a while ago, like a, a long while ago, and uh, yeah, how long's a long while ago? <laughs> um, well, I, I, wasn't it wasn't it mid pandemic? <laughs> it's <laughs> well, I had to cut out a lot of pandemic related chat. <laughs> it's the, it's that was no longer it, relevant. It. We hmm. didn't know the word Omicron, is my guess. No, we certainly yeah. did not. Um, but we if, wanted to link this episode with another episode. And when you listen to this, you might have a good guess as to whose episode that that was. <laughs> it's good. Look, listeners, it's good to have pipe dreams. But yeah, listen. Well, <laughs> hey, listen. Who knows? Who knows? It was pipe dreams based on a yes. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't just pure fantasy. But no. and, and we haven't even said it. We haven't even said. We, no, none of, none of us have said it yet. So this is the We're most. We're speaking it into the universe, but not to yeah. the listeners. This is the most. We don't consider the listeners to this show the universe. Subtle marketing <laughs> you can do for something that doesn't actually exist <laughs> as of yet. But um, we wanted this episode to, to be heard. It's like really interesting insight, I think, into a, into a career in TV, especially just finding out how shows mm. like From the Vaults are made and, and how, you, how you get there. Yeah, I love that show, by the way. Yeah. I mean, what would, how would you describe From the Vaults, Steve? It's like, to the it's like a, a good... Like classic Top of the Pops. What, what? No, what was it called? Top of the Pops Two. It's like a good Top of the Pops mm, Two. Right. Like every with the facts. Well, yeah, but it, it's <laughs> every performance is there's something like magic about it because it's just on these local networks, these one-offs, often, mm. often just lost performances that were never aired or were aired once and no one yeah. ever sees again. 
Yeah, the incredible stuff that like Yorkshire TV was producing. Yeah, it's like there was just so much culture. <laughs> so, so anyway, I got rid of all of the stuff that was too time related. There, there is one mention of Twitter, which obviously this was before Twitter ate itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm certainly hearing that Kieran was massively into the old squeaky chairs at this point. Yeah, this was back in back in those days. Yeah, well, maybe it wasn't my squeaky chair. Maybe it was uh, another member of this band creating a faux pas yeah oh there is oh. A, there's, a, there's a it sounds bad the 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 thing at the start that you're about to hear oh. <laughs> okay all it is is i'm not doing anything on purpose it's you guys peeping down my blouse <laughs> i just leant forward yeah, okay. and you saw down my shirt that's all that's happening there. <laughs> that moment aside i think you'll really enjoy it an interesting take on a career in TV and in music. Enjoy. Hello. Oh. <laughs> X-rated already. Going down that Listen. room, is it? What? You didn't see... <laughs> there, was, there were shadows. There was an outline. This is a lesson in decorum what not to do in a Zoom call. Oh, yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> no one's looking at that. Anyway, so Kerry, how are you? Yes, very well, very hot, but yes, fine in general. Currently unemployed. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a very positive outlook then on yeah. your current situation. <laughs> so, what do you mean you're unemployed? What do you mean you're you still work for TV? Yes, but, so you're freelance. Yeah, I'm in between contracts at the moment. So I start again on the 9th of August on the next project is that typical or is there like i always assume people were on like central contracts no the majority the majority of so i used to work for itv for like 18 years and then gradually they started making more and more people redundant to the point whereby they they only really started to um, employ freelancers it's just a way of keeping costs down so mm. um you you literally go into a a, a production You've got your pre-production, you've got your filming, you've got your edit, and then you've got the post-production, and then you're finished. And then you have to go and look for another job. So that's pretty much how most productions work. Most most staff, but most people are freelance. Oh, because you see now, don't you? Like shows when they switch from like BBC to ITV, it's actually not that big of a deal, is it? Because it's normally just made by whichever yeah. company. Yeah, I think out. in the sort of, I think the BBC certainly do still try and keep a lot of it in-house and make make programs themselves but you know funding and money is just so tight um yeah you watch channel four and it'll not be a channel four production it'll be a production company that's made it for the channel i'm thinking of bake off (laughs) bake off is my example of that yeah do the channels still do their own well like like there's a company like called ricochet in brighton that do like the repair shop and then ITV sort of, I mean, they still make Coronation Street and Emmerdale. You know, ITV still have in-house. Um, um, right, okay. But they're sort of, they're usually long-running. They call it continuing drama, even though it's just a soap opera. It's just a fancy name for soap opera. It sounds, yeah, <laughs> it sounds better. <laughs> yeah. So, t- so do ITV still, like, come to you then, knowing your work, and or do you have to pitch to them? Like, you come up with shows and then pitch and... Well, so I, I finished the ITV in 20, 
2018, I got made redundant, but my boss, they basically closed the department down in Leeds. And my, my boss went and started up his own production company just down the road. So I went and worked for him. Um, so you effectively have to develop ideas and pitch them to the channel. And the commissioning editors at the channel will either say, we're looking for that this at this time. We're looking at a budget of this. So usually you either, you either, you either have a fantastic idea or an anniversary you can celebrate and pitch to them. Or they come to you and say, I really like that series you made. Let's take another series of that, please. So there's a lot of, like, I think there's probably, I could, this could be massively wrong. So don't take it as a don't well, take it Leave as that to the fact checkers, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think really, out, if, if out of 100%, pitch rate is like a successful pitch rate is usually about two. So two out of 100 ideas oh, will get wow. commissioned. It's really, really difficult. Because it's so competitive, there's so many production companies now, yeah. and there's lots of channels that can make it cheaper. Um, and and yeah. and production companies have, have different ways of working. So there's this thing called fair dealing, whereby you don't pay for the archive. I, I work mainly in archive programs, so like it, it's either celebrations of like. I made 50 years of Coronation Street when it was the 50th celebration of Coronation Street, you know, so it's, it's delving into the archives at ITV, which is what the Guy Garby thing is essentially, but it's not made, like ITV would not put that on their main channel because the, there wouldn't be a, a, a strong enough pull in terms of, in terms of viewership, but Sky right. Arts would take it because they're known to, for being a music channel and it's right up their street and Guy Garby's of a name. So um, it, you have to sort of consider who, who the audience is and sort of the channel you're pitching for as well. We should go over for people listening, like what, what the show is. I, I love it. Um, but I was be interested to hear your kind of two minute pitch for it. Like how you, well, well, it, so my boss, Mark, he, um, it, like top of the pops too. And those kind of the BBC sitting on this massive wealth of archive of music stuff. And we knew that, having worked at ITV for a long time that it's a bit convoluted but before ITV was one channel there was 13 regional channels so when you were growing up you probably had Anglia or Granada or Tyne Tees or London Weekend Television and then they consolidated ITV and made it one and all of the tapes and the archive and the footage went into well, the majority of it anyway went into the archive unit in the Leeds office of, of ITV so we knew it existed and we knew it had been massively under like not it just hadn't been exploited very much at all whereby you know you watch Top of the Pops too and you, you've seen you've seen Tenso perform on Top of the Pops and you've, it's quite well-trodden sort of stuff but with this there were some episodes that had that have never been seen since they were shown sort of 40 30 years ago so um, when we were able to attach Guy's name to it, because he loves his music, obviously, Sky Arts were like, yeah, this is great. And it's just brilliant. It's like he sits there. I, I, so you, I do sort of quite a bit of research into his music taste, who he plays on his radio show, who he listened to growing up, interviews about artists that he sort of, he's said in the past that he sort of loves and rates. Um, so it's almost sort of second guessing the kind of bands that he'd like. And then you get paid to watch these music performances and find out facts about the song or about the band and uh yeah you get paid to watch music music videos all day essentially so it, it is like it is literally the dream job it really is it's it's brilliant so as part of your pitch did you uh did you originally go oh yeah we should have Guy Garvey on it or was it more of a I can't really remember 
I can't remember which way around it came. I think we got Guy's interest before we sent it to the channel because usually it, it really does pay to have a name attached to it. When we were at ITV, we, had, we did a couple of series with David Jason and to have him attached to the idea first, knowing he was on board, it, it sort of makes it a stronger, more attractive sort of prospect, I suppose. Yeah, of course. So, so you know, once we had, I think, we, I think the way around it happened was that we got guys, Guy was definitely registered as interested. So and we just had to sell it to Sky Arts and, and you know, they took it. I really love how it how the structure of it because I found myself as I was watching you're interested in music that I don't even like like even now you know I, I sit and watch a whole performance of of a band that I would never listen to again but you're aware then of the sort of context of it and you're thinking about uh, soon to be great artists are just playing like with credits rolling over their performance and stuff yeah. like that and I think I think that that's what that was one one thing that, that has been really really a big plus for us was the fact that you know back in those days if you were a smaller band that was trying to make it like regional television was probably the only way that you would get a shot at it and, you know you have, you have people like Tony Wilson who was a massive advocate of the you know, Manchester music scene you have people like Malcolm Gary and Tyne Tees who was part of the team behind the tube and giving bands their first big break even if they didn't know it at the time, you know, you look back and you just think, God, you know, they went on to be massive and what have you, but, like, you wouldn't have known then that they're going to be, like, one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah, yeah, like, whenever it's anything to do with the Tony Wilson stuff, yeah, straight away, like, you're aware of that, because there's so many films been made about about Factory and Uh about Joy Division and everything and all that whole period. And then when you actually see it for real... And it's and it really is like that, you know, like just properly raw. I think there's yeah. a real magic to those performances. It's interesting watching it because usually, you know, you've got you've got your sound engineers, and it's like, are they sound engineers for television, or do they actually get a live sound engineering? Because you want to replicate the live sound at a gig rather than. But then there's yeah. also the broadcasting aspect of it as well. I mean, you can tell on you can tell on George Holland that it's a TV sound engineer because it sounds <laughs> like the live broadcast of George Holland sounds awful. Oh, right. Yeah. Never watch the live George Holland. No, no, no. Always, Always watch Friday the, night. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many bands have gone on to have gone on a show like Top of the Pops or or one where they don't have to mime and have requested their own sound engineer and they've just been like, no. Well, Soul to Soul famously were told that they had to mime, and I think uh, it was when. Uh, Back to Life was at number one for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And then they were like, we'll only play if we'll do it live. And then BBC were like, no. And they were like, well, we're not, we're not playing then. See you later, mate. And they had to show the Back to Life video for nine weeks in a row. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's, it's sad because it's like, and also like in the 70s, the BBC had their own in-house band. So I think it was Kate Bush turned up to, it might have been Wuthering Heights, actually, when, she first, when that first went to number one. Um, her whole band went with her expecting to play and it was like oh sorry mate you've got to use the BBC band in-house band instead and it was like really yeah oh, I didn't I think... know that wow I can't believe that <laughs> I might have to fact check that one as well yeah we'll fact check it you know what I was going to ask actually was you know I want to go back to like your archiving right because I've always found that really fascinating I always got this romantic vision of someone who goes to archives and someone going to this like big dusty old library and they're kind of getting all of these old like tins of tape out and they're like attached them to the reels and like listen to this stuff like really old headphones going through these old like 50s recordings and stuff. 
Like, is it really? Is everything just like digitized now? Has everything been transferred onto a hard drive somewhere? Like, how do you go through an archive now in ITV or BBC? It, it is. It's in the process of being. I mean, it, it is so massive. Like the amount of tapes. Well, you know, the opening sequence to the to the Gagavi series. That is actually the ITV archive, and there oh. are reels and reels and aisles and aisles of, of <laughs> film. You know, and and you've got to be careful because this kind of stuff disintegrates obviously every time you know yeah. eventually yeah. It'll, it'll it'll just turn to dust so um actually they've like got this big um drive on to to try and digitize as much as possible but yeah there are there are people that that can go and sit in that room and put it on a, a you know put it on a tape deck and, and watch and watch the film but like oh. it's, it's it's a case of prioritizing because it's obviously not just music that they that they have there now they've got they've got so much stuff um mm. But yeah, there, there there are dusty. But I mean, it's actually quite clean. I think it's got to be. And it's, it's all kept at the right temperature, and you know. I assume you're not the one that's sitting there for hours going through. No, no, no. It would be nice to. No, they've got they've got designated people that that do that. Um, but they're they're finding stuff all the time. There's stuff like so when the tube went out, um, and they had a a, a band to finish play play out the end credits. Um, sometimes the artists would stay on and just play play a whole set and that was that although the credits had rolled and the program had stopped going out because it was live they've still got this recorded footage of the Tom Waits performance that we just had in last week's episode um that was after the cameras had after the cameras had technically stopped rolling as in wow you'd you'd, you'd finished you'd finished the program had finished but he was still there and happy to play on I think Tina Turner when she did her big comeback they had to they th- they threatened to pull the plug. They could not get her off stage because she was <laughs> but, but of course they pay overtime. Uh, back in those days, the technicians and and the cameramen. Of course, it was all down to overtime. It's like we've got to pull the plug on Tina Turner. Sorry, love. <laughs> so um, yeah. When you put your show together, what do you see of that? Or is it sort of presented to you as like a suite of? So we've got this. We've got this footage. This is a highlight of it. Yeah, so they've got um, there's 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 two there's there's good old fashioned research and going on the internet and finding out bands' performances, whether it be listed on the websites or they've got like a, a visual geography or what have you, um, and then there's also um, a searchable database that ITV have, so you can actually search their databases for bands, uh, programs. Some of the time you've got a, like a program and a program number, but you don't know who performed on it. Uh, other times it'll give you a really comprehensive list of who performed and what songs they did um so you can watch a lot of it online so i i could go on and search for it and watch the whole performance but if it's still not been digitized if it's still technically in a digibeta box or if it's still on film firstly that's good for us because the chances are it's not been sold therefore it's probably not been seen since 1978 or what have you yeah um so if you can theme the parts that's brilliant. If you can do a part on post punk, if you can do a part on the tube, if you could do a part on I don't know synth pop or what, and you know you get you get. I've got a list of bands that I know performed on which program. So you then order it, and then by the time you get into the edit suite, that's all been digitised for you, and you 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 can just sit and watch it. But ideally, you view everything before you get to that stage, if possible. So using the Guy Garvey example, then so even, so as the presenter how much say would he have had in it he, you just cho- you just chose what bands he did like and kind of threw them in every now and then or 
Yeah, well, I, I always, I, I'd pick bands with him in mind. So um, you, you do a search on, with his name and the band's name and or you read interviews with him, you know that he sort of is in the past. I mean, he's a massive Kate Bush fan, which is a big part of, you know, why I think he did the first series because we had the unseen footage from her concert in Manchester. Um, but, yeah, you, you know, I, I can run stuff by him and just sort of say, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? And, you know, he's he's really sort of proactive in sort of, I can write a script with his voice in my head. So I think, you know, I, all right, I think I'd say it like this. But then on the day, he might say, do you mind if I change this? Because I think I'd say it like this. So when it comes to voiceover, it's sort of, there's definitely sort of collaborative thing going on whereby he makes it his own. So can you, so you, can you uh, give us the inside scoop about which bands he doesn't like? Um, I don't think there's any bands that he doesn't like. One thing, one thing he really, really is amazing at doing is is championing bands that, don't get very much exposure and you know he's been he's been talking about Stephen Fretwell for years and years and years and he's just got a new album out and he's such a nice man and he knows so much about music and he's a brilliant storyteller you know we'll get down to do the voiceover and we'll be chatting for like an hour before we even get started just because he, he you know he look he just he just knows he's got a sponge of a brain and you know so much about music but I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say that he would necessarily come out and say I really don't like that band he's I don't think he's that kind of man <laughs> I was gonna say he um I've seen Elbow Live and his sort of patter between the songs is very similar to to the sort of tone of the of the voiceover for the show, yeah. mm-hmm. which I think is like credit to the show because it feels real realer coming from him. Well, it has to be authentic. If he's putting his name to it, and if he's curating it, as it were, you know, it, it's got to sound like it's him. It, it can't sound like it's somebody him just reading somebody else's words because at the end of the day, you know, it's what he brings to the, to the series as well. So, yeah, it's 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 you know, it's a it's a it's a joint. Joint effort. Yeah, like with the with the Kate Bush thing, and then he kind of just says afterwards, and then she doesn't play for another thirty odd years, mm. and then I was at that show, and it was amazing. <laughs> That's just like hanging out with your mate, isn't it? Because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not relevant to what we're seeing here. It's not with you know. He was just like, oh yeah, and that show was really good. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I want to sort of actually identify your kind of role in the show because I think actually secretly. I don't really know exactly what a producer does, except for just it's their thing and they're the creator. <laughs> it's not about the gaff, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Look like, important. <laughs> and especially with a show, with a show like like from the vaults, it's because of the way it's it's sourced from found material. It's kind of like a different process. Yeah, it's uh, so like the the structure really. The the schedule that you follow is that you've got I've got a week to prep each year because it goes in years so I'll go and have a look at all the performances from 1985 try and second guess what guy might be interested and also take into consideration what Sky Arts as a viewer what their sort of demographic is you probably your editor will sort of lay each performance down per part so and then you need to just write commentary so I need to script the start of the year what was important about that year in terms of music get into your first performance and then you need to link ideally link the performances one after the other um occasionally we'll have interviews with people that we can drop in and then 
you finish you finish the program you send it to your boss he says oh I'm gonna make a million changes <laughs> so you make his million changes and then he says I think I'll just make some more changes <laughs> and then, uh, you get it back and then you send it to the channel and then you need to fact check fact check everything you have to make sure obviously that you're not telling massive lies <laughs> saying stuff that's suitable then the program goes through what is called conform whereby the low res footage is replaced with the high res footage and then you put all the bells and whistles on it make it sound nice and make it look shiny and then you deliver it so that's pretty much what a producer does <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you do everything <laughs> it's, it's been really nice actually just because we're sort of got been through two series of it now and you know, you know, me and Guy sort of we get on, we get on well. We've got similar sense of humour, we've got similar taste in music, and there is a level of trust there, which is which is which is really nice for me. So yeah, it's um, I, I wouldn't say I do everything because I don't. You know, the, the list of credits is is as long because there's lots of people behind behind the scenes that do stuff as well. You've got a compliance team at both the production company and the. Um, and the channel, they've both got their own compliance team, so they've got to make sure there's nothing questionable or, you know, it's suitable for broadcast at any time. So you might get away with the odd swear word, but you can't really have loads of C-bombs yeah. dotted around the place, you know. So. <laughs> do you see it as as kind of more work or do you see it as creative output, like pure fun? Or um, I mean, this this series is... is on it is it's a joy to work on you know it's, it's just like if you could if, you know if, if you could ask me what my dream job would be it would be it would be this because you know you're getting paid to sort of find out stuff about music and watch that old you know performances and interviews and yeah and and guys so lovely to work with so um it is probably about five or ten percent work but the rest of it's very much I really love my job sort of thing and how, how long are you like how much interaction with guy is there like over what um, period of time and like so usually um if I, if i've got a question i can i could ask him it like at any time but usually he sort of comes on board more towards closer to the stage of, of the voiceover so he'll um get the he'll get a link to the programs and he'll get the scripts in advance so we can have a good look at those so it literally is just that. But if we need any other bits and pieces doing afterwards, he'll he'll just he'll just record them because he's got his he hasn't got his own studio, but he, he's got a studio down where he records his uh, radio show, mm. and we just do it from there. Yeah, you notice the little uh, each intro. There's a different elbow song. I was thinking, yeah. what happens there? With the, <laughs> I'm, I'm worried. I'm, I'm running out. I'm running out. Like, if you, <laughs> I need I need like more instrumental elbow tracks, really. Otherwise, um, yeah, I'm gonna have to. Start. God, they must have hundreds of them. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I think they will do. But it, you're also very aware that you're editing, you know, his band's work as well. So it's like you've got to be careful not to do it a disservice. Sounds a bit one bar on loop. <laughs> so, so it sounds like your dream job, right? Oh. So I was going to ask, like, how did you kind of get into TV production? Is this something like you wanted to do? Is this? Did you kind of want to get into kind of? music tv production um, or you know what was your ambition to start off i don't think i had any <laughs> <laughs> um, i uh now I'd, I'd i'd been to university in bradford and graduated and i was in a band and we basically lasted two years and we weren't really getting anywhere 
I had no idea what I wanted to do and I was like well I, I know I either want to work in music or I want to work in telly and a lot of the times in telly it's not like what you know it's who you know and my brother-in-law just happened to be working for Endemol who were looking for a runner so I just went along and um got a job as a runner and then did two years on Big Brother. Oh, wow. Cool. Then I got homesick and I wanted to leave London, so I moved back to the northeast. And then um, I sent my CV to six people, and it just so happened that three copies fell on the same man's desk because <laughs> he worked at Granada at Yorkshire and at um, Tyne Tees. So he invited me in for a two-week trial, and I stayed there 18 years. That's a pretty good hit rate. Six CVs. Like I remember the last time I applied for a job, I reckon I used about three thousand CVs. <laughs> but so. yeah, it was it was it was done by post in those days, though. So it was like it had the envelope had to land somewhere. Yeah. So um, so I, I just got lucky. I was just in the right place at the right time. Um, and yeah, started as a runner. I mean, the best way I think for I didn't have a media degree or anything like that. Um, I always found that starting at the bottom and working your way up generally the best way of learning so does that mean you got to be a uh, on one of the very early series of big brother yeah so i did the one with jade and the one with wow. about... <laughs> were you even born then <laughs> yeah that was yeah. prime that was prime that was yeah, the... yeah that was I... <laughs> I probably saw more of it than you <laughs> well it was, I, I was a clips researcher so i had to watch a lot uh, I had to, yeah, oh, we yeah. used to just, we just used to leave E4 on in my house and didn't they have a really go. creepy like late night thing with it went on for hours and you could just watch them they just left it, it 24 hours yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're weird, you're weird. <laughs> I always wondered who's in charge of the bird sounds like because at the time you had to decide oh this might be interesting for later cover it up yeah well, the bird sound I think was it something that could potentially turn into a, a compliance issue and right. um, so if it was sensitive or if they were talking about something they shouldn't be talking about then then it, it was a way of sort of like masking so what does a runner on Big Brother do what did you have to do for that so watch a lot of audition tapes and data entry you know names God, so many self-vacuous and... people's videos that must have been amazing though yeah <laughs> Watching well, audition tapes of Big Brother must have been like some weird sociological study. Yeah, well, or, or nightmare, or nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> then we filmed the auditions, went around the country filming auditions. Wow, chaperoned the housemates the night before they went into the house. So pretty involved then. Well, yeah, I mean the team. The team is so big; it's huge. There's so many, you know, people working on it, and like. The loggers obviously had to log 24-7, you know. So the first step, I did that, and then the second series, I, um, I can't remember, a contestant, it was, I think it was a silly name, like contestant research, but basically it sort of looked after the contestants before they went in when they came out and looked after the aftercare and stuff like that. Right. Um, and I got to go to South Africa with Cameron Stout when they did the house swap. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I was his chaperone. I was the person he was allowed to talk to on the aeroplane. So, wow. Yeah. Amazing. I'm interested in like, so obviously now you're in a super influential role in what you're creating, yeah? So there's a clear relationship between like what you want to do and creative output from the whole thing. Do you feel that same connection to the project when you're on a lower, I'm doing air quotes again, <laughs> like in, 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 a, in a more functional role where you don't have like an executive kind of influence? Yeah, I think um, I think it's kind of for any production. So when, when you are sort of working your way up, like 
you still do very much have a an important role to play I think you know because you go from being like a runner to a researcher to an assistant producer to a producer and all the way through that time you are learning so like when you're an assistant producer you'll, you'll get the opportunity to perhaps go into the edit and cut a cut a VT or you know cut a cut even cut a program but I certainly don't feel any less valued the lower down the pecking order you, you, you go if you know what I mean because ultimately you have a, a role to play in that production you still have you, you're still being creative you're still talking to people finding stories you're still um making judgment on what makes a good story and how you can tell that story so I think I valued every role that I've ever had it just so happens that you know I, I've just comfortably sit in a in a in a job on a series that just so happens to be something that's right up my street because it's just it's, it's like interesting from our perspective because obviously everything we do is just with each other the same few people it's a small group it, I, I can't imagine sort of putting all of my effort and everything I've got into this ocean of everyone's creativity you know and that's why you're not in that job well yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if I could do that I, I honestly don't know if I could sort of put in the hard graft and think I'm sort of I'm losing control of this. I haven't got a grip on where this is going to go. It can be hard. I think, you know, I mean, the worst thing that you can do really when you are producing something is to go on Twitter and see what people are saying about it because some people can be like the response to to this has been great, but every now and then you will get somebody that completely slates, you know, what you've what you've just created. And it's just like, oh, wow, that's... <laughs> That's quite. But that's the same like as being in a band, or that's the yeah, same as being in a band true. and reading yeah. a review that's just shitty. Like, yeah, yeah. How many times has that happened? More so than not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the other day, Kieran showed me a, a site. What was it? Was it on the last FM? And we ha- we just never looked at the, the comments on it. You know, so there's like comments from ten years ago. And even even though there was you know really list of lots lots of really nice comments, you know, Kieran had to sort of hold me back from like, well, what's this guy's? How do we get this guy's contact details? Signing us off for eight years ago. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't handle it. Yeah, so, yeah we slipped so. into a vortex there, didn't we? I think you were somewhere between livid and weeping. Yeah, it can be it can be, but then you just have to realise, you know, there's a, there's always going to be somebody that isn't quite into the stuff that you're putting out there. So yeah, it, it, there is there is you do need to switch off that filter and just kind of not pay attention to it. Not everyone's the same. Yeah. Well yeah, you're never gonna please everyone, are you? But so I'm not gonna say always, um, but at what point did you realise that I'm going to say you were good at making documentary style TV shows because your your history seems to be mainly historical, like compilation shows, like I think, I think anniversary it, shows. It, it kind of, I didn't really have a choice to be honest with you. Um, when we had when we had the department when we had the department at ITV, um, the fact that the archive was literally in the building next door to us, it kind of made sense for Leeds. It, you know, to be sort of not the home of archive program, you know, celebrations and but because it was literally there, it was just easy and we did get a lot of um we did get a lot of commissions on that were like either soap celebrations or I did a documentary on like the you know the the news flash and the history of like the news flash when it used to interrupt broadcasting. Oh that's cool. Um so it wasn't really a 
because I was staff at that point, it wasn't necessarily, I didn't choose to keep going with it. It was like, well, that job's finished now. What's the next thing? So it was just like having a, having a normal job. It was just, you, you don't, you, you did, it was rare that you got to choose what you did. So it was like one job finishes, another one starts. So um, I, don't, I don't know if um, I, there ever came a point where I thought, oh, I'm really quite good at this because you don't, <laughs> you don't do that. You just yeah. you get trusted to, to make a programme and then you hope that it's successful, but, you know, it might not be. But then that's informed your style. Would you say? Would you say now that that's that that is your sort of your style of making programs? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly, my CV is very much a one-trick pony. You know, if if you'd been sort of if you'd have been working in the TV industry for twenty years, you probably should have a bit more of a colourful CV. There's so many different genres of telly, and you know, when you look at my CV, it's, it is quite well. It's predominantly archive based. Um, but then, then, then that's maybe why from the vaults work so well because you've honed that specific area. I, th- I think I think the fact that I've got an interest in music certainly helps, and I think if you know it, it, it making music, you know, definitely having a an interest in music. The, I I could be wrong in saying this, but I find that if you've got an interest in, in something anyway, like naturally, you will put more not effort into it, but you can apply yourself more to it. So so yeah. this has sort of been like a really, you know, I did I did quite a lot of Nation's Favourites, which, you know, they weren't necessarily the bands that I would choose to listen to, but we made one on like Elton John, The Carpenters, 80s hits, you know. It's not necessarily the kind of music that I would choose to listen to in my spare time, but it's like just the, the matter, you know, the, the matter is, is I, I do love music and and. Uh, the nice things to make where you can tell the story behind a song or behind an artist um so it certainly helps to have that sort of vested interest um and yeah it is a security blanket you know if, if you if you know you can do something and be trusted with it then you know why why change it's sort of it's it's not lazy but it is quite I know I can do this. So I'm quite safe where I am. I don't have any desire to go off and do, you know, nine nine nine. What's your emergency? Or you know, some sort of high speed flashing blue light documentary. Yeah. I think there's something something to be said for for focusing on one thing and just be, just getting it as good as you possibly can. I mean, how many great painters just end up mm. their career Painting just doing the apples. same? Yeah, doing the same <laughs> the same painting every day for 20 years yeah because they're obsessed with honing a, a certain skill are there any other any like other avenues of tv you wish you'd ventured into mm, that's an interesting question um i did a very short stint at mtv and i think it would have been good and when it was sort of i would like to have spent more time working there but it's hard to work there when you don't live in london but in terms of other stuff um i'd be really rubbish at wildlife because i can't bear to see death um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I wish i'd learn to shoot I, I, I can shoot but i'm not a, I, I wouldn't be trusted with a camera to go out and film robson green up a mountain in wales do you know what i mean <laughs> funny that you uh, the first thing you mentioned as another opportunity in tv was another music related mm-hmm. thing because so obviously it's like a huge part of your life with your band and um you know codes have played for bad owl and at strange forms for you guys 
Um, so I'm just like interested in how those two things kind of work together and if it ever gets too much or yeah it kind of got it kind of got quite I kind of felt that at one point I was going to work listening to music all day coming home going to band practice two or three times a week and then having a gig at the weekend and I just felt musically exhausted like I'd, I'd, at any opportunity so usually what would happen like Stuart would come downstairs on the morning put the radio on have his breakfast I'd get up come downstairs he'd go and get a shout I'd switch the radio off I just I just needed quiet I just needed a, a peacefulness mm. and and I still feel that to a certain extent because you, you find that eventually you know, you know you find that sort of like music listening to music becomes less of a, a thing that you enjoy doing and more of like that's my job or you know it I really struggled with it for quite a while and you know I think I'd definitely say I got massive fatigue just doing music in all my spare time as well as as a day job yeah you can't be invested in too much it, it maybe not even so much about time it's just about the sort of the amount of brain space you're allocating it and the amount of yourself you're yeah. into it yeah so does that mean you've not even been in a rehearsal room with your band in a year no I, I haven't I can't remember the last time in fact I can't remember the last time we even I mean they're, they're cracking on they're sort of I think they respect thankfully they respect how I feel about the whole thing and that they're sort of got a little side project going on so they're not sort of redundantly just waiting for me to you know decide that I'm put my big girl knickers on and just go back into the <laughs> practice room you know but like they're they're using their time productively but you're not giving up on the music. It's just obviously the current circumstances and anxiety. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I've been able to sort of do a bit of remote sort of stuff with mates that I can do that from home. So that's, you know, we can, we can, I'm quite open to doing sort of like remote remote working in terms of sort of recording. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not ready to hang up my, you know, what, what would I hang up? Fingers. What I, fingers. <laughs> that sounds a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> hang your fingers on the shelf. <laughs> hang up my microphone just yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I reckon maybe you've had the music fix from making from the vaults. Yeah. And then when that's sort of when you're not doing that for a little bit, then maybe that itch comes back. Yeah, absolutely. And I, d- I definitely went through a period of I think pretty much the last four or five years. Oh, actually, that's a bit of a lie because David Jason isn't really a musical superstar. But like, um, <laughs> my la- my last sort of three, three <laughs> years has been. Um, it's big on the folk scene now, have you know? Um, oh, I last... love David Jason so much. Oh, do you? I can imagine. I can imagine him singing. It'll be He's fine. Well, I think there was a small pause there where we all imagined like an album cover. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we all imagined different things. I imagined, I imagined him in like sunglasses, doing like Velvet Underground, like standing completely still just kind of mumbling into a microphone oh no i had crooner full crooner going on in my head <laughs> um yeah like the last sort of three or four years has predominantly been purely music programs so it's like and you know I, i'm a because i'm so fucking anal not in that sense but you know because i'm I, like i am a bit ocd and i do give my my programs and stuff now this is taking a different turn isn't it um I, I do i do end up sort of spending more time than i need to working on a program i, I do put 
more in than probably is expected. So it's mm. like there is a case of burnout, definitely a case of burnout that goes with it as well. But it seems like you're sort of reappraising your relationship with live music as a whole. Yeah, I, th- I think I think there's there's been a the thought of getting on the stage petrifies me. It absolutely petrifies me because. I've never been a, a particularly comfortable person on stage anyway, but like, yeah, I, d- I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is. I think it's just a confidence thing, but I think just the thought of doing that is just like, ooh, I don't, just don't like it. <laughs> just don't like it. Just, like, ooh, just <laughs> stick me behind a damp and let me hide sort of thing. Yeah. But I think that's a common theme you find. Like when you, you know, play with lots of other musicians and bands, it, you kind of come across a lot of people, I think, who are fairly similar to that. I think it's almost like, um, counterintuitive to people who don't perform is that I think sometimes the idea of when you're on stage it's almost like you become quite insular when you're up on a stage it's like especially for me at the back right I play drums so I'm behind a little kit and usually all the people standing in front of me and they get looked at rather than me and I just kind of tend to spend 99% of the time I'm on a stage just looking down or like looking at my sticks or something because I, I feel like if I just that's me then I'm on stage I'm insular I'm just to concentrate on that yeah I've, I've, I've encountered lots of musicians who say the same thing yeah yeah but I think in the past even though it's much less of a thing now everybody's so sort of right on but like the amount of times it's like Kerry you need to be at the front because you're the girl that has happened so many times and so many bands have been <laughs> yeah. in and it's it really puts a lot of pressure on like no matter how you feel about your own self-esteem and you know your own confidence it's like you know, token woman sticker at the front of the audience and, you know, not even anything to look at, to be honest with you, but like just it's a girl, it's a girl sticker at the front. And it's like it just it just automatically puts a huge amount of pressure on you. It's like, fuck, I don't want I don't want that. I don't want to be what the, the thing that people stare <laughs> at, thing. you know. Exactly. So it's I've always had a bit of an uneasy relationship with it, to be honest with yeah. you. That's that's an interesting thing to sort of unpack. I mean, I can only obviously give my perspective from the outside being as I am a man but like I would, I would imagine I would imagine that people that women feel that way even when they're not on the stage at a gig just in the crowd you know especially certain genres you know maybe ours included that are just vast majority male even in the crowd I mean I don't know is there a sense of otherness for for most women that go to a show, you know, that they feel a pressure or some sort of strangeness. It's a tricky one. I, d- I think, you know, it, it is. I, d- I think, like you know, that those sort of pressures certainly weren't necessarily as part of like the post rock or the math rock scene. I think, I think, in general as a whole people are pretty especially in this day and age people i'd like to think you know people stopped using the term female fronted band a lot like a long time ago and that and that's kind of like there's no need to say what, yeah. do you, know what I mean? you never say yeah. male fronted four piece would you so um don't know it's it's, it's difficult I, I don't think certainly as a gig goer i i never feel that the fact you know just because i might be one of 10 women in the audience i don't necessarily feel any you know kind of like i'm really aware there's not many women here you know with there's there's been a lot of discussion about the whole women thing and you know me and Stu have been criticized as well for not having more women female representation you know on on, on festival lineups yeah I, th- I think I think you know especially because Strange Forms is sort of quite 
it's not strict, but it's kind of like it's a, a band sort of has to fit in with the type, particular type of genre to play. You know, that you know you can't you can't just invent bands with women in it if they don't play the sort of music that the punters want to necessarily come to the festival to watch. So it's really hard. It's really hard. But um, typically, it's been the case in you know any any music genre. You know that there's there's typically less women full stop so i mean obviously because as a promoter you've kind of got you know a fair amount of experience of booking bands and you know you've got like a wide kind of vision of all the different kind of bands in the genres across several genres i mean people like to think there has been like progress and people involved with music like to say there's been progress but what's your perspective on it do you think there's been progress in that in that area I've, yeah i've definitely noticed that there's there there, there are more skewing matilda i'm sorry <laughs> she's getting a bit vocal i'm gonna have to let her yeah. out or well or stick her up front because <laughs> she is female <laughs> there's your female feline <laughs> what's her name Matilda, Matilda, yes. Matilda. Oh, gobby little shit, as she's known. She really, oh my gosh. She really she's deaf. Right. She can't hear anything. So um, I don't think she realises how noisy she's been. But um, yeah, <laughs> she's all right. She's just a very noisy alarm clock. Um, there, there is, yeah, I, I think it is changing. But then there's always sort of like the thing whereby there could be a load of local bands that have got women and you know they're just not on our radar and Stu spends a lot of time sort of researching bands and and always keeping that in the forefront of his mind that we do need to be fair enough in terms of representation of, of all walks of life as to who we have on stage you know it's, yeah. it's not it's not just a, a female thing you know it goes across the board so um I'd, I'd, I'd like to think it's changing it's, it's it is quite difficult when unfortunately the majority of the bands that get more no Variety just happened to be to be make mostly male, mm. um, mm. but um, I do I do think there has been an emergence of more women in bands in general. I think there has anyway. Yeah, I think it's good to talk about that kind of thing because it's about finding this balance of the the grand scheme of things, the general trends in terms of attitudes to to gender and all, like like you say, all kinds of things, race included, and um, those general trends are obviously super important, but sometimes from a personal perspective, when you're not directly personally affected, it's easy to forget the actual individual that, yeah. that feels those effects at, you know, at gigs or, or, you know, being on stage. Like it's such a shame that one person at a show has to feel a certain way or even mm. worry about feeling a certain way. And whilst it's really important to to always talk about those like kind of macro political issues, I think it's also important to think about the sort of sort of micro incidences r related to that. Right. Like we as a band, we talk about the the politics and the overarching scheme of of that sort of thing a lot, but we I don't think we feel as comfortable speaking about like personal issues like yeah i very rarely talk to you karen about like oh how did how do you feel about that kind of thing relating to race because it's the same kind of imbalance in terms of that yeah i mean it's uh that's not a question i don't know <laughs> <laughs> you find that you get that question posed to you a lot karen 
Uh, I have done in quite a few interviews, yeah. Um, and I do notice, well, I do notice it sometimes, but it's just, again, like the female thing, it's just an absolute underrepresentation. There just aren't loads of Indian people playing post-rock music in the UK to start getting on festival bills. Or if there are, they're being very quiet about it. <laughs> But it's the other way. Like I, I don't recall us ever being told like, "Oh, put put Kieran at the front of the photo shoot or do this." You know, like there's not that same like real obtuse pressure no. as those with women, right? Or I don't know. No, I don't think so. Plus, it's not. It's never an angle that we've. <laughs> it's not an angle that we go for because it's ridiculous, right? So it's more of a. I I I'm not going to say some people don't do it they might do but the female fronted band thing i think is very true because a lot of people would be like oh if we can get a girl in the band it'd be great for the band's image and like female singer everyone like and it's just like <laughs> it's just it's it's a weird concept isn't it it's really cynical like like old 70s manager isn't it like a guy with gold medallions and it's, i'm gonna take you to the big leagues and like all you gotta yeah. do is do, yeah. that's how that's exactly how it feels yeah Get a bit of fluff on the front there. Yeah, yeah. Really <laughs> best uh, up there. Lovely yeah, job. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much to Kerry. It's always great speaking with her. Really good company. And yeah, a new series of From the Vaults of Guy Garvey coming soon. What is it now? Number. Number four is being filmed now. I think it's the fourth one, yeah. Didn't listen to that's the fact that's well exciting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Steve, you've got to pay more attention to the fact because, as we all know, this guy has some very sensitive feelings. Is he? Are you about to go on strike, Fact Robot? For next, yeah. for well, next I felt like season. this at the end of the last series. Fact- I know that I'm getting turned off soon, and it's just sad. It's- yeah. <laughs> it's something made of solid aluminium. He's got very thin skin. Yes, you, promised you, you, promised, you promised me a four-month break. It took six. I don't know what's going to happen next time. I'm, look. I'm, am I look, needed ever we're gonna again? Be, we're going to be vague, and we're going to say spring. <laughs> 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 next next week is our, uh, it's our last interview of the year, um, and we've got the brilliant... Emmy Award winning composer Mr. Michael Price Ooh. Kieran and I had such a wicked chat with him uh, he gave us fascinating insight into his work on projects like Sherlock X-Men Da Vinci Code and these uh, indie movies called Lord of the Rings I never have seen those <laughs> Well, uh, while you're watching all 15 hours of Lord of the Rings, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us on info at codesintheclouds.net or find us yes. on Twitter and Instagram at codesclouds. I, I love Michael. And I love, like, Michael's work in movies is great. And you know, I love movies. Big fan of the, the Harry Potter franchise. Um, as you might know from my previous, uh, my previous work, uh, my favourite bit, obviously, being the the Snape and Dumbledore scene where he's like uh, after all this crane and then Snape's like paper I, love <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to plug his other pod I'm so happy see that coming. 